Welcome to the new Tribal Theocrat. I'm your host, John McGregor, and we have as our guest of the first new show, Robert Fingleton. Hello, everyone. It's been a, probably well over a year now since our last show uh, with the initial run of Tribal Theocrat, and we'd like to give a thank you to Christian Gray for his work on that, but this is the renewed Tribal Theocrat. Correct. Uh, we're very grateful to Christian Gray and all the work that he did. He did a tremendous amount of work to put this uh, website together and to do the original podcasts, and we're only hoping that we can be even halfway as good as he was with all the work he did on it. And It's in his honor that we want to continue to do these podcasts. We're really happy to have Robert on the show today because we have a topic that's near and dear not only to his heart but to mine. Uh, we're both lovers of music, and uh, it's a big part of our lives, and particularly heavy metal music. And uh, so that's going to be our topic today. And we have uh, quite a wealth of information to share with everyone. And uh, Robert has, has done a lot of work to put together what we believe will be a interesting show that might touch on some areas of the music that you might not have previously even thought about. One thing uh, worth mentioning is Robert's extensive background in the music world and in radio. And Robert, would you like to talk a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I got the uh, heavy metal, hard rock bug uh, back in 1976 via Kiss on their Alive album. And it bit me pretty good and stayed with me for all the years since then. But back in high school... I wrote a column for the school newspaper reviewing heavy metal albums. I also, along with two friends of mine, we had a local show on a local radio station, 96.7 FM KLIS, a station, unfortunately, which is now Mexican music format, <laughs> Spanish language. But it was called the Total Rock Hour. It ran from 11 p.m. to midnight every Saturday night. And we pretty much had carte blanche to play what we wanted to. And in addition to that, I auditioned for a vocalist of a heavy metal band that was out of Tyler, Texas, and I bombed horribly at it, but uh, at least I had the the courage to try. Right. Oh, and my first concert, since people might want to ask that, would was the Kiss on their Asylum tour when they came through Dallas. That was December of 1985, almost 31 years ago. It's hard to believe it was that long ago, and here yeah. the the band is still out performing and and playing and rocking just like they always have. It's amazing, and uh, makes a good statement against all the pop music only aficionados from the mid '80s who would say, "Oh, is Kiss still around?" Like, yeah, they are. But how about all the bands you listen to? <laughs> you exactly. know, most of them are on the on the rust heap of history. And I believe, John, you said, too, that your first concert was that Kiss on that album tour, was it not? Uh, well, actually, I had been to a few metal concerts before that, but that was the one that meant the most to me up to that point. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> I previously had seen uh, Judas Priest and Dawkins uh, earlier that year, and uh, I was very happy to, to see them. And then uh, it was... Actually, New Year's Eve, 1985, that I uh, saw Kiss at the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, they put on quite a show. I I was really blown away by the whole thing. 
I was uh, quite young at the time. I was only 14, and uh, so for a 14-year-old, that that was a pretty big show to have to take in. <laughs> and uh, you were lucky on that. Then that part of that concert in Atlanta ended up on Judas Priest's live album that came out a year or two afterwards, didn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, the Judas Priest live album. Uh, a good portion of was recorded in Atlanta, and then the other uh, piece was recorded in Dallas on that mm-hmm. tour. And uh, so I'd like to imagine that if you listen really close, you might hear me screaming on there. <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> well, the uh, one other bit of history on, the, on that uh, concert tour was the first time that I uh, did a concealed carry which was not even possible at that time. But my father, um, since I was going to Dallas with a friend of mine, he gave me one of his handguns to take uh, to the sh- to Dallas. And um, most of the time it sat out in the car, except when we went in to eat. We, mm-hmm. My friend and I parked in downtown Dallas, and the gun went into a uh, pocket on my coat, and we went and ate and went back to the went to the car, actually ran across some blacks who were running a con game and oh, uh, wanted to sell us some some pure gold jewelry, but uh, <laughs> we declined, and fortunately there was nothing more to that bit of the story. Otherwise, the concealed carry gun might have had to got a workout. But oh, wow. Fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, things ended all right. But, yeah, here I was, just over 17 years old, illegally carrying a gun in Dallas. You know? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> For me, concealed carry uh, to concerts meant something a slightly bit different. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been a, uh, a concert taper for many years. Uh, there are a lot of people that are involved in that, and uh, we like to conceal recording equipment on our person and tape the shows as they're occurring. And uh, it's interesting because uh, there's been quite a few really, really good bootlegs out there from people doing that that at the time they were going on, People thought it wouldn't wouldn't have turned out to be a big deal, but now these are classic recordings that we're thrilled to have around that they even exist. Uh, and there's a considerable amount by Kiss and Led Zeppelin and and all these bands we're talking about in heavy metal. They were probably the biggest acts that were were being bootlegged and taped. And uh, so it's it's really now great that we can go back and hear a lot of what these concerts sounded like and and the quality isn't really that bad on a lot of them and uh, I guess that would lead us also uh, to the beginning of the show here we decided we wanted to have an opening statement from Blackie Lawless Mm -hmm. Uh, did you have something from Blackie for us? yeah um, Blackie Lawless of course was another you know prodigal son that you see several of in the uh, world of heavy metal who was raised with uh, something of a Christian environment and then he departed from that fairly badly and then ultimately came back to that and this was he was being interviewed in uh, the ultimate classic rock website and the interviewer asked him he said many fans don't understand when their favorite musicians find faith how would you say being a born-again christian affected the overall creative and recording process of this album to which Blackie Lawless responds, Certainly, lyrically, everything is written from the eyes of my faith. Everything is through that filter. You're also talking about a genre, heavy metal, that in general is obsessed with the idea of God and or the devil. Jazz, pop, there is no other genre that is absolutely obsessed with it as this genre is. 
The Bible tells us the truth has been placed in the hearts of all men. In other words, people know what the truth is. What I see is people in search of the truth. They're all on a journey. The people that are attracted to this genre are people who are really a lot more in tune with it than they think they are. And there's also, I believe, uh, listeners can hear a prayer led by Blackie Lawless at a concert in Norway in which he actually you know, closes in the name of Jesus Christ, just not to some nebulous God character, but actually mentions the name of Jesus Christ and gets a fairly high level of respect and approval from the crowd. I believe in this in a prayer. A very short prayer. For those of you that don't believe this, please give us a moment and don't say anything. Almighty Father, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus. And we know that your word promises us that for those that believe, all things work together for good. We ask you, Father, to strengthen the families and the loved ones of the people that were lost here and heal this nation and raise them back up again. Father, we praise you in Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Amen and amen. really brave uh, of him to have done that, particularly in Norway, because uh, they pretty much have The death metal, yeah. yeah death metal and um, black metal influence is so strong there. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Norway has pretty much jettisoned the gospel far in advance of America, and uh, but obviously Blackie saw that he was there not only to put on a, uh, a show for entertainment purposes, but also to spread the gospel and uh, mm-hmm. he's much to be commended for that. And I'm sure that the people in that crowd needed to hear the gospel every bit as much as anybody else would. Uh, a lot of people want to write off the the fans in the metal community as being uh, reprobates and aren't worth their time, but, but they need to hear the gospel every bit as much as any other group of people. And Blackie Lawless could go where most people could not have gone with that message. That's right. Um, before we get a little bit too far into this, uh, one area that I, I'd forgotten to mention was just kind of some of the bands that I was really big into, and I think people would like to know some that you were into as well. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, for me, uh, Dokken, Dio, Kiss, Iron Maiden, um, Ozzy Osbourne, only the 1980s era Ozzy, not the post-1990s you know, era and onward. Metallica, once again, 1980s era. Megadeth, Wasp, obviously, Rat, Rush, Vinnie Moore, Ingve Malmsting, and um, there were a couple of little-known acts from Canada, which I liked a lot as well, too. White Wolf, which was from Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, Hand Over Fist, which I believe was from the Toronto area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was actually a decent scene up there at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, started out listening to Kiss in the 70s, and uh, my older brother was a big influence on me in that regard. He he was the one that began buying records and and bringing them into the house, and he'd play them, and I liked them. And uh, along with Kiss was Alice Cooper, and uh, definitely Led Zeppelin, a whole lot of Led Zeppelin, and uh, then definitely uh, bands like Motley Crue and uh, what I guess could be considered hair metal and uh, Quiet Riot. White Snake, all those bands, and uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize before some of those bands got big, they still had um, 
you know, quite a few albums come out before they became popular. And I liked those earlier albums too, like bands like White Snake. Uh, they had some records. With David Coverdale being the vocalist there, they, who had been with Deep Purple previously. Exactly. That's exactly right. And then uh, he started White Snake, and their first album came out in '78. So mm-hmm. before they were were big uh, in America, they had put out at least six or seven albums in England. So I was a fan of them before they really hit the big time here with uh, MTV and, and that sort of thing. And uh, For me personally, also, uh, as a guitar player, I started playing guitar at age 14. I got very interested in bands that had great guitar playing in them because I was looking to learn and, and wanted to emulate uh, what what my heroes were doing. So that kind of drove me into areas that uh, might not have been as popular, but the guitar players were great, like uh, Dawkins with George Lynch and uh, definitely Eddie Van Halen. Uh, everybody recognizes his greatness. And Steve Vai and uh, even Adrian Vandenberg from Whitesnake. He was a great player. John Sykes, or was it David Sykes? Uh, John played? Sykes, yeah. John Sykes, yeah. He was a tremendous player as well. Yeah, yeah, he was really great. And... Uh, then you've got Steve Lynch was with Autograph and uh, Jeff Watson of Night Ranger. Uh, the list goes on and on. And then uh, in the 80s, we saw a lot of virtuosos come out in the hard rock metal scene on guitar, and uh, they recorded quite a few instrumental albums. And that's what I was really the deepest into. Uh, Greg Howe and Vinnie Moore were my two favorites, uh, and there were a few more in there too. Uh, Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, those guys, and uh, so uh, Greg Howe was just a giant in that you know he took uh, combined shred playing with uh, with kind of a a fusion or a bluesy type element as well. That's exactly right. Yeah, he was yeah, able he was. to do it all, and everything he did was executed with with great precision and accuracy, and and he was able to make it all sound like it was easy, and uh, but but. What he did was anything but easy. Same with Vinnie Moore. Uh, what he did was highly technical, uh, and it was very much in the neoclassical vein, which is something that was started by Ingve Malmsteen. Uh, I never really got into Ingve as much, though, because of his outward Satanism. Uh, really bothered me. Um, as above, so below, that kind of thing. That it was so so brashly satanic that I didn't really want to listen a lot to him, but uh, definitely indebted to him for starting the whole neoclassical movement that saw the birth of people like Joey Taffiola and... uh, Tony McAlpine. Definitely, definitely Tony McAlpine. Jason uh, Beckert. Yep, yep, Jason Becker. He was one of the all-time best. Uh, Definitely. And uh, so he really uh, came along and, and really reinvigorated the guitar in a way that was similar to how Eddie Van Halen did it when he came out. Right, yeah, it was about five years after the Van Halen debut album that uh, Yngwie Malmsteen's uh, Marching Out, I yep. believe that was his his debut album, was released in 83, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's right, yeah. What bothered me with Yngwie, a lot of just Yngwie's playing, it tended to have kind of a dark structure to it, and I don't mind a little bit of that, but after a while it tended to be... Um, kind of depressing and just generally repetitious, whereas for me, Vinny Moore was a, a neoclassical player who was actually, his compositions were happy. They were, That's exactly they were right. enjoyable to listen to, and they sounded different from one another, unlike Ingve's dark and brooding compositions. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, I think the difference is that 
not only their worldview as people, because Ingve, uh, you know, he, he definitely has great overtones of Satanism, but uh, he also was influenced by Paganini, and mm-hmm. who, you know, if you researched him, there was some satanic elements in him even back. Oh, then. I did not know that. Indeed, and uh, so Ingve, you know, he'd do stuff like uh, Black Star, uh, which got a Paganini influence, but then Vinnie Moore was a Bach freak. So, you know, his his outlook on life was, was more positive and uplifting, and he wanted to use music to uplift you. And uh, he even thanks God in liner notes. I, well. I remember that on the record sleeve on yeah. Mind's Eye. Yeah, he yeah. does that. Yeah, that's uh-huh. right. Yeah, and he, does, he did it on his next album, uh, Time Odyssey, which, in my opinion, was his best record ever. It's just an absolute masterpiece. Anyway, uh, but those uh, are the the influences that both Robert and I have. And uh, I think, Robert, when you were doing the radio show that you had, uh, what, what kind of music were you playing on that? We were playing, um, I guess my interest and taste expanded a little bit further after I got out of high school, but it, a lot of it was, you know, standard staples of hard rock and heavy metal. We A lot of Kiss, as people might expect, Van Halen. We uh, dedicated a good bit of one show to uh, Metallica's Master of Puppets shortly after it came out, uh, ACDC. We tried to play anything particularly that was new that was coming out, since obviously being in East Texas, you couldn't really depend on local stations or even Dallas stations to have airplay for anything that wasn't really established as a classic. So while you might have heard a song from a Dallas station, say ACDC's Back in Black, you weren't going to hear anything that they'd done for, say, the uh, movie uh, Maximum Overdrive. It was a Stephen King production, but it had a heavy ACDC soundtrack on it. You weren't going to hear that on any radio station, but you heard it on our little small-town <laughs> FM station. Right. You would hear songs like that, but um, things that we were weak in, some of it which we knew we really people wouldn't have been too interested in hearing. Uh, we would sometimes play a little bit of, say, Ingve, but most of the instrumental composers we didn't play a lot of just because we didn't think the listening audience would have been extremely good for it at that time if we'd had a longer show three or four hours we may have gotten more into those kind of kind of bands though but also say like doc and do we played and iron maiden we played material from them as well too Mm -hmm. yeah iron maiden uh definitely is a is a staple of any metal lovers uh collection I can't imagine a band that typifies good metal, you know, consistently more than Iron Maiden. Well, they have a lot of integrity, and, you know, they've built their reputation pretty much without any radio airplay, although if I ever run into, you know, Steve Harris or one of the other members of the band, like, we've never gotten radio play. Like, well, yeah, you actually you did on a little 5,000-watt <laughs> station that had a 35-mile radius, so you're welcome. But, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, they're still selling out stadiums and arenas, to this day, you know, 36 years after the release of their de- debut album in exactly. 1980. Yep. They still have a very loyal following, and uh, any time they play somewhere, they're they're bound to sell out. Now, uh, moving on, uh, what, what would you uh, have to comment on, on the good and the bad in metal music? Yeah, and for people listening, you know, we're obviously both of us are very friendly to this format. There are bad things about it uh, a lot of times, which the people who've been the most heavy denunciators of metal have really 
drop the ball on it. But uh, the good is almost never emphasized, and I'd like to cover that cover that first, and, and then you know talk about some of the negative aspects. Uh, this is tell you what I'll read the lyrics to this song, and then people can you know think while I'm reading it. You know who, what band did this? Okay, here it goes. Have you ever thought about your soul? Can it be saved? Or perhaps you think that when you're dead, you just stay in your grave. Is God just a thought within your head, or is he a part of you? Is Christ just a name that you read in a book when you were at school? When you think about death, do you lose your breath, or do you keep your cool? Well, I've seen the truth. Yes, I've seen the light, and I've changed my ways. And I'll be prepared when you're lonely and scared at the end of your days. Could it be afraid of what your friends might say if they knew you believe in God above? That's part of the extract. Now, people might say, oh, that had to have been Striper or maybe Amy Grant. But No, that was from um, Black Sabbath from their third album, The Masters of Reality, and the name of the song was After Forever. Geezer Butler uh, was the member of the band who composed it. When asked about that song several years later, like, well, did the rest of the members of the band, including Ozzy Osbourne, like it. And he said, well, yeah, we were all pretty much raised in a church environment to one extent or the other, and they all pretty much liked it. Um, there's even one website uh, or an article on a website that says, is Black Sabbath, was it the first Christian hard rock band? Obviously, the people in Black Sabbath had had problems and issues but a lot with drugs. But overall, uh, lyrically, most of the people that denounced them never really spent much time reading their lyrics because there were other good songs uh, like that as well. Right. Interesting. And now uh, I had also understood that Geezer Butler had uh, very early on experimented with witchcraft and had a, a vision at some point where he woke up in the middle of the night and he thought he had a witch standing over him and it scared him half to death. And he swore it all off after that. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it was like a, a some sort of demonic presence that was there. And the next day, he got rid of all of his books on the occult. Exactly, <laughs> that's right. So he had a uh, a moment where where he realized that he was heading down the wrong path. And uh, I would have to say, the Lord graciously worked in him to to remove that presence from him. Very much so, right? Um, but for I don't want to camp out on Black Sabbath too long, but there was a great comment on um, on the band Black Sabbath. It's one listener said, "I listened to Black Sabbath a lot before I became a Christian. I still listen to them a lot. There's never been anything satanic about them. Yes, they've had the dark imagery, and the name itself has been brought into question. But the people who call them satanic have never really listened to them. I have no issue at all with being a Christian who listens to Black Sabbath." And there's a lot of other people like that too, as well. Right. Um, what, what are your favorite Black Sabbath albums? Well, uh, what record uh, did War Pigs come off of? That was the well, that was the second one, wasn't it? Yeah. Of course, I, it was either the second or the third. I can't remember. Uh, great record. I think it was Paranoid, the second one. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. You're right about that. Yeah, and Paranoid's a great song, also, and. Uh, you know those those early albums are really good, and you know to uh, make mention also not only was the lyric content pretty deep in a lot of regards, um, but musically they had a unique sound, 
And so they kind of had a total package there where they had meaningful and deep lyrics. They had a unique sound, mainly because Tony Iommi was missing a couple of fingers. Mm -hmm. Uh, From a factory accident. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And so uh, what he did was, uh, in addition to to wearing some prosthetic uh, uh, ending, tip endings on his fingers to play, he also detuned the guitar and the slackening and the strings made it a little bit easier on his fingers to play. And that caused them to have a deeper uh, sound on uh, the guitar than, than was usually heard at that time, and it, and it gave them a unique sound. And uh, you combine that with the uh, enormously unique voice of Ozzy, and uh, you know they, they just really had their own thing going completely. Well, you take a song like War Pigs, and that was one of the great anti-war songs that you found throughout the through the world of hard rock and heavy metal in an age that became addicted to war. Um, they were, came out towards the end of our Vietnam War uh, era. But you see this uh, as a recurring theme in a lot of music in these bands going through the 70s and 80s, and War Pigs is just a, a great anti-war song. I'd say my favorite album from them was when Ronnie James Dio joined in, and uh, that that album was uh, Heaven and Hell, oh, yes. which was released in 1980, and he just seemed to have a such a rejuvenating effect on 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 Black Sabbath. And lyrically, they Dio brought in his uh, kind of you know people call it castle metal. But where he <laughs> writes, you know, fantasy themed top lyrics that uh, I'm sure he's read probably Lord of the Rings several times. Oh yeah. But he's you know picked from material from that kind of source, and more than a few people think that Dio was a was a closet C.S. Lewis fan, right. As well, and that pulled heavily from his material too. Yeah, that definitely is a great record. And uh, one one last point on Black Sabbath was that. Uh, Compare the way that they approached an anti-war position, like on War Pigs, with how nowadays you have all these liberals that are musicians, and, well, I don't even know if you can call them all musicians, but they're definitely in the music industry, and how they approach being anti-war. Although they haven't done it in the last eight years. No, they haven't. Yeah, they're with their hero in office, uh, they're afraid to speak out. But prior to that, they definitely did. Uh, and, and rather than having a, a deep and meaningful song that retained some masculinity to the worldview that it projected, you know, they instead are whiny and uh, don't have any depth of thought and uh, really make a nuisance of themselves. Don't really give the people any good reason to be anti-war with their mm-hmm. position. Correct, yeah. The... The War Pigs, obviously, the um, Black Sabbath was um, based in Manchester, England, and they wrote this at a time where, obviously, there was a small British presence in the Vietnam War, not much of one, but where they just kind of sing, particularly in Europe, um, the 40s, obviously, World War II impacted Europe far worse than it did us, and then the Cold War was much more at their feet than it was here, and the whole 20th century was just a, a century of nonstop bloodshed. And you, you look at their lyrics from a song that was written um, in probably 71 or 72, and they're just as pertinent now. And a lot of the 
the pop music emphasis has just been driven on whether it's a Republican war or a Democratic war. And of course, if you know if it was a you know Obama war, then they were all for it, or at least they weren't going to say anything against it. So, you know, whereas the where to me the denunciations of, of war from like War Pigs or some of the other acts, I actually have a few other titles written down, was more uh, just kind of just against the, the nation state's obsession with war. Um, I can't remember the the writer who said it, but that uh, war is the health of the state. Yes. And that, you know, statism just thrives off a wartime environment. And, um, and it's also a great way to debauch a culture. And you look at the U.S., in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, well, the Vietnam era, particularly, say at the end of the Tet Offensive in 68, we had, you know, every decade for three decades had seen, ma- you know, massive wars, and then finally just the social fabric couldn't withstand anymore, and you had the huge uh, cultural revolution that occurred in the U- U.S. towards the end of the 60s. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, if you could, uh, can you think of any other anti-war songs that we've heard in, in heavy metal? Metallica had two great ones, uh, Disposable Heroes, which was off their Master of Puppets um, album. One of the, you know, back when Lars Ulrich wasn't as much of a joke of a drummer, he <laughs> <It> was great <laughs> on that album, and, and that on on that song, and then on their next uh, album, which was Injustice for All, there was a um, song called One, and it has one of the most intelligent music videos for it. They actually had to buy the the rights for a, a movie that came out, I believe, in the early 1970s called Johnny Got His Gun. And it's about a man who's been just butchered, um, I believe, in World War One, where he's lost his sight and his hearing, can no longer speak, and he's lost his arms and his legs. And, you know, a, what would the French would have termed a basket case. Mm-hmm. And he's being kept alive artificially, and all he can do is just think. And uh, it's a it's a pretty intelligent video. Then you have from Def Leppard their uh, from their Hysteria album, Gods of War, War Pigs from Black Sabbath, obviously. The from Iron Maiden. There's probably at least several songs there, but Two Minutes to, to Midnight stands out from them. That was also another very clever video that it showed something like um, insiders or a secret society who. Used, who um, adorned their clothes with the all-seeing eye of Horus, ah. that they were playing both ends of society, that they were working the criminal end, the underworld end, but also working the government end um, towards war. That was a very clever video. Uh, Megadeth, several there, but then uh, Peace Sells, but who's buying? That was you know, obviously a very big anti-war song. And then from... White Wolf, the uh, Canadian band from Edmonton, Alberta, wonder what the war will bring. Ah, one last one that I can't believe I almost skipped over it. The English band Saxon, which many listeners are probably not familiar of, but they're they're gigantic in Europe and had some success selling here too. But a song called Broken Heroes, mm-hmm. and that was from their 1985 album Innocence Is No Excuse. That was another great any war tune so well, uh, there's a rich rich history there on that yeah front. yeah no doubt uh now saxon uh i think they were part of that uh new wave of british heavy metal weren't they i believe so yeah you know iron maiden judas priest some would throw def leppard in with that others wouldn't but yeah i would say they were definitely a part of that 
Yeah, I think uh, they had been around for for quite a while, actually. And uh, also, I had heard to tell that they were somewhat of a um, influence in the movie Spinal Tap. Uh, did you ever hear that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not familiar with that. There's some great quotes from a lot of people in that movie, uh, like Eddie Van Halen's comment, like, I didn't find the movie funny at all. It seemed too real to life. You know? <laughs> but I didn't know if, well, of course, you know, that was an English band in right. Spinal Tap, that Spinal Tap was playing. So, yeah, I could see that maybe they borrowed heavily from, you know, one or more of the characters from Saxon. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, but this amplifier turns up to 11. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was Nigel, uh, what was the name of the guitarist in Spinal Tap? Oh, uh, Tufnell, I think. Yeah, that's right, Nigel Tufnell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Derek St. Holmes, or something like that. <laughs> Derek, uh, that's close. Uh, I think it's a little oh, bit... Oh, St. Hubbard. Yes. Oh, gosh, man, what a, what, a, what a joke of a band. Those guys played it to perfection. They uh, did, they did. <laughs> well, you know, uh, some of the, the listeners may not be familiar with... Uh, the fact that there are indeed some professing Christians in metal. Uh, do you have any names you can throw out there for them to, to let them know that there indeed are some Christian professing believers? This uh, was something that seemed like uh, all of a sudden about ten years ago, and certainly when five years ago it started kind of happening a lot. Um, the first one I think I, I heard about was Nico McBrain, the drummer for Iron Maiden who currently attends a Presbyterian church in America uh, down in South Florida mm-hmm. but after that I started looking around more and more and there was uh, in Megadeth you got two uh, Dave Mustang the founder and, and vocalist and then the bass player David Elson who actually attend, uh, takes classes online through a Lutheran Missouri Synod Seminary hmm. And then, of course, Blackie Lawless of Wasp is another one. Uh, Alice Cooper, who you mentioned earlier. I mean, where would Shock Rock be without Alice Cooper? But oh, yeah. Alice is a pretty serious man, and he said that, you know, before, like, you know, no one should base their life on me. I'm just a, you know, I'm just a, a lowly, you know, musician. But he he has played R.C. Sproul Sr. in golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, word was he, he couldn't... Um, drink as much as R.C. Jr. Uh, could, so he, he couldn't play golf with him. <laughs> but um, Vinnie Moore, who we'd mentioned earlier, who's, um, you know, in addition to being an instrumental guitarist, is also the guitarist for UFO. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, of course, Striper, which has been a, a Christian band from their their founding. But they get a lot more respect now, particularly Michael Sweet does, than what they did in the 80s. Mm-hmm that uh, George Lynch, the guitarist formerly of Doc and now of Lynch Mob, he's an unbeliever, but he has an immense amount of respect for Michael Sweet. And as a matter of fact, the two of them worked on a on a project, uh, released an album called Sweet and Lynch, and they're heading back to the studio sometime in 2017 to record a second album uh, since the first one was so uh, well-received. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's good. I think, you know, in some part with Striper is that they used to be the big black and yellow machine and they had these outlandish outfits. Well, of course, were very common back in the 80s, but uh, I think just the fact they've been around now for 30 years and are probably, um, you know, a little bit more mellow is, is why I think they've, you know, found a lot more respect 
uh, in the metal world. I mean, just I think it's kind of a good testimony to the nature of metal fans is that within the last week, there's been a feud that's broken out between Michael Sweet and Sebastian Bach, who was formerly the vocalist for Skid Row, mm -hmm. a tremendous vocalist. Well, his ego got too big, or a lot of other factors figured in, and, and they gave him the boot some time back, and I believe they have a, a, a girl now, or a young woman who, who sings vocals, and Michael Sweet just made the observation that she sings very well, and Sebastian Bach chose to take offense and came out lambasting Michael Sweet. One of the articles I read about, and uh, I think mainly on Blabbermouth, but it may have also been on Ultimate Classic Rock as well, the number of fans that were coming across as pro-Sweet versus those who were pro-Sebastian Bach, it was about 25 to 30 to 1, you know, overwhelmingly um, pro-Michael Sweet people. So the, this view that, you know, well, everyone who listens to hard rock or heavy metal has their, you know, satanic Bible and they hate all things, you know, oriented to God or Christ, is just, you know, it's just simply not true. Right. And there's a lot more stories along that line, too, but that's just, you know, an example that's come out in the last week. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, I guess in this case, uh, a lot of the, the metal fans that, you know, were, were big at into metal in the 80s are family men now and family women, and they, they have children that are probably listening to this music now, and uh, they, they are not the type of people that are going to take offense at Christianity, even if they themselves aren't. Uh, they understand the values that are there and, and the longevity that, you can have through living a moral upright life and so they probably have a lot more respect for a guy like sweet and uh a guy like bach you know he's he's still running on ego <laughs> yeah he is <laughs> the a lot of people don't realize this too as well but if you were to go to just about any you know concert for hard rock or heavy metal band say like kiss and the people that are going to be there are generally going to be white males older than 40. Right. And, I mean, in other words, you're talking about the most conservative voting block in the country. Exactly. Because it's not millennials with their left-wing socialist ways, and yet they're not part of the Social Security, um, you know, I'm old, give me, give me, give me, give me money from FedGov type uh, either. So, I mean, it's definitely the most conservative voting block in the country that you would find at one of these concerts. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but it's a good time to throw it in that uh, recently a Lars Ulrich, the drummer for Metallica, this was probably, mm, I think, late October, had come out saying that if if Donald Trump won, who neither one of us support, obviously, but if he won, that Lars was going to move back to Denmark. Well, the man was just hammered in the comments sections, hundreds of comments that were overwhelmingly uh, anti-Hillary and, and, you know, and consequently anti-Lars Ulrich as well, too. But, I mean, you would think that you were reading some comment thread for, you know, some paleoconservative or, or, or pro-Trump uh, website, <laughs> and yet this was, you know, this was a metal site, and People who, by and large, were at one time probably very friendly to Metallica back when they were actually a talented band, but um, were definitely telling Lars he was full of himself. Well, you know, I think Lars began his uh, descent uh, when he began being very vocal about piracy 
mm-hmm. and, uh, and what he the Napster incident. Yes, yeah. exactly. And he really, really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because he he came off as being extraordinarily greedy and unconcerned with the fans who put him where he was to begin with. And uh, I think that now people expect him to to say things that they don't like. So when he does, they're they're willing to pounce on him right away. There was a a great episode of South Park that dealt with that Napster controversy, and and you know, of course, South Park has always used um, a lot of real life people and portrayed them that way. And Lars Ulrich made a mm-hmm. an appearance in that episode in an uncomplimentary sense that he was sitting at the edge of a pool sighing, and I think uh, one of the boys, Stan, says, "Well, what's wrong with him?" Like. Well, you know, he was wanting to get a solid goldfish tank. But now, due to Napster, he's going to have to wait another month and a half before he can afford it. And, you know, Stan's all remorseful and repentant, like, oh, I had no idea, you know, downloading music would have this horrible you know, impact on it. <laughs> That's they, they seem to have a very humorous way to really uh, hit the bullseye with nailing, you know, people on their idiosyncrasies on that show. They did, and, and Brittany Skibiers was another one who just got was just hammered in that episode. For her. <laughs> she had to trade in, I believe, her Gulfstream Five uh, private jet for a Gulfstream Four. Uh, <laughs> like, well, yeah, we should all have it as tough as they do. Well, I tell you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, we've got these Christians then that are in in music and uh, as. Uh, has there been any kind of influence that you've been able to see by maybe writers uh, that are well-known like Tolkien or even C.S. Lewis? Have you seen anything like that in any of the band's lyrics? Well, in Tolkien, you know, of course, Led Zeppelin had a song that was actually, um, I can't remember the high level, but it was very obviously inspired by Tolkien. Um, Rush as well, their song from, I think, Caress of Steel, their third studio album i believe had a song called the trees on it that i have to believe was heavily influenced by tolkien as well c.s lewis uh there's there was a houston band uh, king's x that had a lot of i mean it was very clearly influenced by c.s lewis narnia a swedish band i mean narnia of course it's obviously about as c.s lewis oriented as you can get uh ronnie james dio of course uh People saying that you know this guy. I mean, he seems like he's been very much influenced by C.S. Lewis. And in general, metal lyrics are much more sophisticated than what you hear in pop music. Uh, I happen to be a big fan of a lot of the pop music that came out of the second half of the 1970s and the 80s. But uh, lyrically, a lot of it's generally been pretty shallow, just about you know falling in love and oh, I miss my girl and that kind of thing. Um, with metal lyrics, you typically had a, a people had a lot bigger interest on on what was going on in life, and the lyrics were sometimes very sophisticated. I actually, when I was taking a Western Civilization course uh, at a community college in the early '90s, I was right. Uh, one of the questions dealt with Alexander the Great, and I, I couldn't remember a couple of details about him, so I remembered the old Iron Maiden song, Alexander the Great, which was their you know eight-minute song from uh, 1986's Somewhere in Time album. I just remembered the lyrics and just basically wrote them down 
changing them up a little bit. There were a couple of facts in that song that were not actually in my survey course on Western Civ, and the professor was like, "Well, oh, that was that was a good little fact you threw in there." Like, well, you know, <laughs> you know, thanks to uh, you know, typical Iron Maiden fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and but generally, uh, generally songs from any you know Iron Maiden, Rush, Dio, a Wasp, particularly from post nineteen eighty eight. Megadeth, you're you're going to be dealing with a much higher level of of lyrical content than you are with uh, pretty much any other genre of music. Right, right, and uh, a lot of people think that the music is is just singing about fornicating all the time, but you know they even uh, you know have been known to metal bands to even have songs criticizing public schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Pink Floyd, who I would say is probably more of hard rock than metal, but obviously we're talking about hard rock as well, too. But their song, Another Brick in the Wall, um, which most people know by the the chorus tune in it, We Don't Need No Education. Um, the video for that in particular was just a masterpiece, depicting public schooling as a factory and assembly line process to turn out drones. Um, and I believe in the founder of Pink Floyd, isn't he heavily uh, uh, anti-Israel? Yeah, actually, uh, yeah, that, that's true. Um, it shouldn't be construed, though, that his position on that necessarily means that he's what you would consider conservative on a lot of other issues, but uh, he indeed has been very vocal about that, and it's caused him a little bit of trouble. Uh, it has, yeah. He's caught hell from the Zionist press due to that. Yeah, that's right, that's right, and... Uh, you know, he uh, he took a stand, and it's impossible not to have a little respect for him for it. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, it's Roger's, Roger Waters is who we're referring yes, to. Yes, thank and, you. Uh, he uh, he definitely was was a very uh, big creative force in the band. Uh, I'd say, you know, him and David Gilmore, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, he's... He's got to be uh, given credit where credit is due. He's he's one of the very very few uh, people in the public eye who are willing to take that stand, knowing in advance that it's going to make him an outcast among everybody else in the entertainment world. Because that is the one sacred cow that you do not mess with in sure. politics or in the entertainment world. Uh, you do not express being an anti-Zionist. So he was willing well, to do that. And we've got to give him thumbs up for that as well, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wasp also had a great um, Annie public school song from their debut album in 1984, which was just entitled Wasp, uh, called School Days. And Days is spelled D-A-Z-E, mm-hmm. which I think you know, was appropriate <laughs> that <laughs> appropriate way. There was actually a fan. Well, they never released a video for that, but a, a Wasp fan kind of came up with an impromptu video that was extremely clever. Hmm. And if anyone can find it, that I think they'll enjoy it. It was a, a great video that just you know depicted the boredom and monotony of public schools. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, and also um, one other thing that uh, comes to mind is the uh, Rush song from their 1982 album Signals called Subdivisions. Right, right. And that isn't about public schools entirely, but it, all, it deals a lot with the cliques, the the subdivisions. Of, of humanity, and certainly the public schools are factories for generating cliques and um, divisions and 
student body, a lot of them for not for good reasons. It's not like it's the strong Christian students versus the non ones, and usually it's the you know the well-to-do students or the jocks or or what have you that um, you know create a, some really poisonous cliques. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's definitely a fact that uh, because this genre had lyrical content that was far deeper than what anybody would have suspected that it has had a great longevity as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the you know, you see so many of these bands like Kiss, Rush, both of them date back into the first half of the 1970s. Black Sabbath, <laughs> another one who's been around since, well, for them, 1970. And uh, a lot of bands that were formed in the 80s that are still around. You know, you see these bands that have three and four decades worth of you know, heritage and history behind them. And you don't really see that much of a thing in the pop music world. I mean, you do where you have, like, say, dedicated uh, acts like Pat Benatar, Brian Adams, or Bruce Springsteen. They're still gone. But generally speaking, where you actually had a band in operation, most uh, most of them are not uh, no longer going. Of course, the rappers, they kill each other off pretty quickly, <laughs> fortunately. Probably. And... Uh, Country music tends to have a lot of the same problem. If it's not a solo artist, then those bands tend to fall apart pretty quickly as well. Mm-hmm. And then you have just the number of, of cover bands. Right, <laughs> right. Mind-boggling. Here in Dallas-Fort Worth, we have cover bands uh, which are centered on Dokken, ACDC, Metallica, Ozzy, Def Leppard, Journey, uh, down in San Antonio, there's a Kiss cover band. I mean, you could probably just, if you come just Texas alone, you could find probably find a lot of the you know the great metal acts <laughs> that have you know bands that are dedicated to them. And I guarantee you, no one's running a a Michael Jackson or Boy George or Tears for Fears cover band. Or <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. And uh, you know, there's a demand. These bands wouldn't be out there playing, and uh, sure, instance, if there wasn't demand for it. Sure, and probably in some instances, since a lot of the original bands, their vocalists are getting old, and, and you know they can't quite hit the same high notes that they used to. But True. you know the cover bands have got guys that are in their thirties and forties, maybe even a few times in their twenties, so they might even be able to put on better acts than what um, what the original bands did. It, it's amazing to me as well the number of of not only web pages, but Facebook pages, which are focused on heavy metal and hard rock. Um, you and I, of course, are part of a, a Facebook group that's just about Kiss from the 70s. Right. Yeah, not even from the 80s or the 90s, just the 70s era Kiss. Um, and then in terms of the history, <laughs> this was a great example. On uh, November 7th, just you know, th- you know, last month, uh, I had notices from at least three websites that, hey, on this date, November 7th, 1981, Ozzy Osbourne released his album Diary of a Madman. Yep, I saw that. 35 years ago, and yet you've you've got such a sense of history amongst these people that, you know, they're all talking about it. Uh, whereas, once again, amongst pop metal and country music, uh, I just don't see that kind of dedication to, to past performers. Um, That's so true. There's, it's really encouraged, you know, it, it's a form of music like Blackie Loss was saying of where it's obsessed with you know God and or Satan what well, also seems to be obsessed or breeds the obsession of history into people uh, there's a great quote from uh, you were, we were talking about Saxon earlier from Biff Bifford 
who's the singer, vocalist for Saxon, and he told the uh, English newspaper, The Independent, in 2010, he said, Heavy metal is a tribal music, and everyone is a member of the tribe. The audience is very, very loyal, especially the Germans. It's not like pop music, where if the next song isn't good enough, then forget about it. With our music, people will allow you to be garbage sometimes, and that's one of the great things. Then he goes on to add, The music's not about love. Our songs are more about Richard the Lionheart, Steel, Trains, and Thunder. But when you click with an audience, it can be an experience, a massive connection. I suppose you could say it is a religious experience in a way. But that you know that kind of loyalty and dedication also brings the historical aspect of it that mm. you're simply not going to find with other genres of music. Yeah, that's that's actually a very very good point. Uh, metal music has a, uh, a a fan base that as they grow up, they still stay true to the music, and that is because there was substance there to start with. Yes. And so that substance that existed in the past still exists now, and they can hold to it as part of their uh, core worldview. And they still see that there's value in the music itself because, let's face it, the music had a certain level of virtuosity in it as well, as as the musicians required uh, good singing and good guitar playing and, and energetic and, uh, and virtuosic drumming even. Uh, you know, it, it was not a music that was a joke. Uh, it required uh, a lot of talent to be able to pull it off. And that right, these aren't just session players right. playing for Britney Spears right. and singing, you know, songs written by record company songwriters, and where she didn't even pin the lyrics to those songs. Exactly. So, you know, yeah. How are you? I read a comment uh, just a couple of weeks ago. The guy said. In 20 years from now, no one is going to be talking about music um, that's come out post 2005. That it's just it's been such such garbage music for the most part that um, they'll be they'll just be, I mean it's strictly flash in the pan type stuff. That's right. Yep. They're interested today, tomorrow. gone tomorrow. So that's, yeah, that's it. And uh, you know, uh, there's a lot more to be said for the the fans of heavy metal as well when they have a a worldview that uh, caters to core values uh, that are reflected in the lyrics of the songs. Uh, I guess, you know, for example, uh, heavy metal fans are less likely to have affairs. I think that goes back to, you know, the loyalty to to bands and probably to each other since we were considered kind of a subculture that was not entirely looked upon kindly when we got into it. And, of course, that's one thing I loved about it was the fact that you had this great camaraderie. Um, there was, well, I went to a Metallica concert in 1988, and the people I was supposed to meet, I, I think they got there a little bit later, and so I was standing around some perfect strangers, and uh, I start, struck up a conversation with them, and in five minutes they invited me to sit with them on the on the floor of the, of the concert. So, <laughs> you know, you just you had that kind of great culture. But uh, as a particular on that, uh, there's a an adultery website that's mainly centered, I believe, on the United Kingdom called Victoria Milan. And anyway, it asked about 6,500 of its members of their taste in music, and the survey found that the majority of their cheaters uh, came from uh, 
outside the metal sphere. For jazz, it was 19%. For pop, 13%. Uh, country, 12%. Uh, classical music eight and heavy metal was dead last at two percent. Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> you know, there's definitely some some quality there. The you know, the fickle nature of pop music and the pop music fans, I think, probably is you know reflected in how they live their lives and loyalty to their have uh, to their spouse. There was also an, another article that came out within, I believe, it was either 2016 or 2015. It was called "The Metal Kids Are All Right." And the uh, sub subject line said, a new study claims that kids who listened to heavy metal music in the 80s turned into middle class, gainfully employed, relatively well-educated adults. And the people who travel in our circles of you know, conservative kinist, there's a number of people who like this kind of music as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, all all that really speaks well to the fact that while these kids were listening to this music at the time, they were trying to tell everybody, look, all the sensationalism you're hearing out of people like Tipper Gore and all this trash, uh, you know, this this is actually uh, not true. You know, I'm telling you, there's there's nothing wrong with this music. It's a good creative outlet for a young person. And, uh, you know, I think we're actually being attacked un- unrighteously in this. And so it's really you know, borne out in, in what you just mentioned, that that ended up being true. Uh, you've got people who uh, have turned out to, to be really what you could consider the backbone of America. <laughs> Very much so. It, it was interesting with Tipper Gore that that she and her husband, Al Gore, that they were trying to do uh, a kind of a classical maneuver, trying to take the family values agenda from Republicans. And so uh, Al Gore probably set his wife up to start this whole drive to have uh, albums labeled um, to this kind of fake organization, probably government-funded, called uh, the Parent Music Resource Center. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, the Senate picked three, or somehow the other three musicians were picked uh, to testify before the Senate panel, which Al Gore was part of. Uh, Twisted Sisters D. Snyder was one of them. John Denver and Frank Zappa were the three. And the thought was was that that Frank Zappa would lose his temper right. while up there, and then that John Denver would capitulate, and that Dee Snyder would look like an idiot. Well, the exact opposite happened uh, with all three of them. That one guy said on the YouTube comment about uh, Dee Snyder's testimony, which you can easily find on YouTube in its entirety. He says, "You know, wow, you know, Dee Snyder speaks like a Harvard Law graduate." <laughs> now I wouldn't say he was that eloquent, but he he was definitely eloquent. And oh yeah, he, he did. A, you know, years later he talked about how he went in there to try to to totally disarm the people that he had his speech torn out of a spiral notebook and folded up, and he kept it in his back pocket just to make them think to the last possible minute. You know, this is just some idiot, and we're going to eat him for lunch. But instead. You know, D. Snyder was the one who ate them for lunch. That's right. <laughs> and it's interesting that that the albums and the groups they had ranked, uh, Tipper, of course, was using it mainly as a platform to rip on white men. They did have uh, one or two rap acts that were listed among them, but it was mainly mainly hard rock and heavy metal bands. But after 
you know, rappers came to dominate what was considered, you know, setting just new standards on filth in, yeah. in albums, <laughs> that basically the whole desire to, to rank albums died off because there have been nine out of ten ranking albums would have been about rappers. And, of course, you know, the Tipper Gore and Al Gore very much wanted to appear pro-black right. uh, to keep their Jewish money masters happy. Yes, that's indeed true, uh, along with their uh, very very uh, overwhelmingly large liberal base uh, where they've got 95, 98% blacks voting Democrat. Uh, you did mention also about uh, Tipper Gore, one of her intentions was to demean white males. And, uh, you know, it, it would be a fact, though, that, uh, you know, Christian men are more likely to listen to metal. Right, I think dangerous, you know, people who are dangerous in a good way, and I'll borrow something from Tolkien there in uh, Lord of the Rings of where uh, Gandalf tells one of the hobbits that, well, you have, you know, different types of dangerous. You know, Aragorn is a dangerous man, but good, you know, dangerous good. And Mm -hmm. you, we need men today who who are dangerous again um but in a in a good way in a christian way that you're not going to see a rising up of people who are willing to embrace controversial ideas uh, or you could even say dangerous ideas who are or people that overall are not, or don't have that in the rest of their world view or in their life that someone who listens to Heavy metal in, in high school that definitely was a social status-seeking killer. You weren't going to climb into the good group of preparatory kids by listening to metal. But the person that would would be much more likely to embrace kinism, mm-hmm. race loyalty, race realism, or to uh, say that, hey, you know, I think you know maybe Donald Trump isn't the answer to all of our problems. Mm-hmm. Um, it... it it tends to attract people who are willing to take radical stands elsewhere. And conversely, I've never really seen a lot of people who were just, you know, pop music only or the um, the Wigger type whites right. that who would say, "Oh yeah, oh, I'm gonna, yeah, I love these books by Rush Dooney and 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 Rothbard and, and Nyquist and, and who all." No, it doesn't. You know that. And that's why I think so many people in our circles have listened to this kind of music, you know, in the past or even currently. That masculine music appears appeals to masculine men and makes men more masculine, whereas a lot of pop music, particularly pop music of our current era, uh, makes men weaker. And weak men are not going to embrace strong ideas. Very, very true. Very good point. That's uh, also true about uh, groupthink. Mhm. Yeah. Gosh. Um, you know, the metal crowd definitely attracted people who wanted to think for themselves. Maybe they didn't always think of the way they should, but it was definitely people who were uh, willing to stand apart and not go along with the collective. So much of America feels like you know, from Star Trek, the whole Borg cube, the Borg collective mentality, where everyone is just a drone, and definitely. Heavy metal has always encouraged people to stand up for for themselves and to think for themselves and not capitulate. You know, one of the big crimes of of any metal band was always the of selling out. Oh yes, and that's been you know one of Metallica's problems 
from 1990 onwards, or I guess it was 1991 when their Black Album came out. Like, no, Metallica sold out. You know, we don't want anything more to do with them. And that's, you know, that's a bad thing. Where So integrity was always appreciated. Rush, in their 1980 album, Permanent Waves, they had a song called Spirit of Radio, and one of the lyrics, lyrical lines says, you know, all this machinery making modern music can be still be open-hearted. Um, oh, heck, the line's escaping me right now. But basically, it's just, you know, how do you hold on to your integrity in making music, particularly when there's so much money involved and the temptation and pressure to sell out so that you would, you know, have your songs played on the radio. Right. And of course, Rush never sold out, and, and they yet they were still able to stuff you know, stadiums and arenas full of their fans. That's that's true, and uh, that kind of made uh, metal more of an outlaw uh, persona in the music industry, and uh, so you know that kind of led it to also have a more of an all-white status uh, in the in the metal industry. I think, you know, whites were the only ones who really um, could appreciate the musical virtuosity and the complexity of the of the lyrics and the structure of the music. And, and plus, blacks in general, um, when metal really started going on from, say, the late, or at least the second half of the 1970s, already blacks were starting to slip into uh, the early forms of rap. Mm-hmm. Sugar Hill Gang and various R and B acts that were starting to to bleed over into it. That you know, what the earlier black musicians, say like BB King or Jimi Hendrix. I mean, you can hardly even find those types of, of black musicians anymore. Just like at one time, black baseball players used to be very commonplace. You don't really see them at all anymore. Right. Blacks now are generally either into R and B or into into rap, whether listening to it or, or being performers of it. Whites were able to think more and say, "Oh, hey, there's some there's some quality there." Obviously, the you know blacks for the most part don't have the ability to cre- create musical compositions on the levels that whites have. There's been a few exceptions, obviously, like Greg Howe or, or Tony McAlpine, both of whom are are very good at what they do. But by and large, you know they they very much have been exceptions to the rule. Mm-hmm. I. You, I think Biff Bifford hit partially on uh, why, indirectly, why metal has been um, associated kind of as a pro-white form of music. That the historical consciousness of the metal fan of whether we want to hear songs about Richard the Lionheart, and so we we get songs like that, or songs about Vikings, um, or Alexander the Great, or about the pharaohs in Egypt that white people have more of the intellect to to want to hear that and enjoy that, whereas with blacks, uh, Mexicans, most non-whites, they, they simply don't want to hear that, that yeah, kind of music. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And uh, didn't Joe Elliott of Def Leppard have something to say down? <laughs> down he, was, uh, a, he was in a concert, I think, in, in Tucson back in the mid-'80s, and they played in El Paso the night before, and he said you know, he didn't think the crowd was making enough noise, and he, he said, you know, that... Hey, you know, y'all don't uh, y'all can cheer louder than uh, you know the bunch of greasy Mexicans we played for you know the night <laughs> last night. Of course, he got in trouble with the media, but one of his best things I think was when Kanye West, the Taylor Swift was receiving some music award, and, Ta- and Kanye West came up and 
you know, basically hogged the microphone and and um, Elliot uh, called him a dumb, stupid rapper. <laughs> and, <laughs> and of course, I got Elliot in trouble with the press again. And Kanye West said, "Man, I'm I'm trashing all my Def Leppard albums after that." Like, I don't, <laughs> dude. We know you don't have any Def Leppard albums. Yeah, that took him all zero seconds to do that. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> like, okay, Kanye, tell me one Def Leppard album. It should be easy for you to come up with that. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, you know. Uh, it's interesting also about uh, heavy metal that there are similar similarities between it and opera. Yeah, the I think obviously the it, Ronnie James Dio said repeatedly that that metal acts were they embraced the theatrical right. aspect. They embraced the the concept of theater in their own music, and you see the elaborate stage shows uh, sometimes the costumes um, certainly like with kiss they were obviously very big into their costumes but the stage sets have always been very elaborate even on bands that were not into say uh, you know uh, castle metal such as dio that rat and motley crew those bands had very elaborate stage shows oh yes uh, the the music itself uh, a lot of it is is, is high tempo some of the vocalists uh, sing with either operatic or opera, semi-operatic style vocals. I know Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden. People consider him to have, you know, kind of a semi-operatic vocal styling. Tony Harnell of uh, the Norwegian band TNT. Uh, Tony's an American. He, I think, has a vocal range of about five octaves. Mm-hmm. And his mother is a is in fact a, an opera singer. It's always long, just you know, graded only something fierce to hear the, the fundamentalist types that would denounce generally just rock and roll, but but the, certainly against metal and say, well, you know, it has a lot of drums in it, and drums are the sound of war. Well, you know, any opera just about is going to use timpani drums, which are drums on you know like bass drums from rock music on steroids. Right. Yeah, huge bass composition in it. But you know, I've never heard any fundamentalists talk about, oh well, uh, you know, timpani drums are satanic, and I won't go to the opera because of the of the sounds of war. No, I mean that's preposterous. There are good, there are things you can legitimately criticize about metal music and rock and roll, but um, the use of drums certainly are, are not one of them. High energy music in general has a place, whether it's in classical, um, in opera, or heavy metal. There's times that I want to be able to think, and so I'll listen to maybe more soothing uh, classical music. But other times I want more high uh, tempo. When I wrote a lot of this, I stayed away from um, any kind of really high tempo music. But in other times, you want to listen to high tempo music. So once again, this idea that everything has to be music that's elevator music that doesn't excite you at all. Like, why? You know, a lot of Bach pieces, a lot of Beethoven pieces, Vidor's pipe organ piece. Um, I can't remember Vidor's. He was a French uh, pipe organ composer. I hear those. Yeah, I'm on the edge of my you know seat, wanting to hop up and down. Right. So why is it you know that high tempo classical works are considered okay versus high tempo metal works? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it, it's a issue of, of personal taste bleeding over into trying to make absolute demands on on what is right and wrong. 
Well, sure, and you'd hear people like, uh, say, like David Noble or Rush Dooney or guys like that. I mean, a lot of them, you know, like, well, you know, I just can't stand metal, and but I, you know, I like to uh, sit around and think about Bing Cosby or uh, you know the reprehensible pop culture tunes from, like, say, the 19, from 1900 to 1950, where we're going to sing about the Erie Canal <laughs> or yeah, you know, the wishy washy washer woman. It just you know songs with just moronic lyrical content right. in it. And if you if you'd studied any instrument in more than four to six months, you could play the the simple chords <laughs> with such a low tempo to any of those songs. Um, it's just you know that was their personal preference on things. Right. Uh, e. Michael Jones in particular, he's he's done some valuable work on on the Jews, but he, he yeah some of what he says about uh, uh, hard rock and metal is just. It's just simply rubbish. I'm always trying to equate rock and roll and jazz as being a euphemism for sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you know, tell that to some you know jazz jazz musician that has been studying his craft, like Alan Holdsworth, right. for, for years. I mean, yeah, I think it's not sex on the mind. I think it's you know number of chords he has on his mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. The. Uh... The fact of the matter is, is that just the the actual word may have started as a euphemism for that, but the music never had anything to do with it. Just just the actual term, jazz, just the word. Uh, sure. The word rock and roll. Those, those words may have had that, but but that was not connected to the music. And uh, some people, you know, they speak on things that they probably shouldn't in an effort to try and sound intelligent. You know, they they want to be, you know, similar to somebody who really was intelligent enough to speak on a lot of topics like uh, a Dabney or someone like that. But they really aren't. They're not of that caliber, but they, they're trying to be. Uh, so it'd probably be better if they just stuck to their specialties. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> hey, it would. You know, you do make a very good point, though, when you mention... Uh, you know the the training operatic training that a lot of singers have uh, because it is true that heavy metal emphasizes instrumental virtuosity as well as the vocal virtuosity that you see in the singers. Well, you think about uh, you know these great shredders such as Ingve Malmsteen, Vinnie Moore, Tony McAlpine, Paul Gilbert. A lot of those guys go around putting on clinics, guitar clinics around the country, teaching. And that's how some of them make a, a large portion of their living is by teaching aspiring guitarists how to play at their level. And haven't you you've been to at least one clinic run by Paul Gilbert? Haven't yeah, you? yeah, that's right. I uh, attended a Paul Gilbert clinic, and uh, I think it was it was either '88 or '89. Uh, he came to Guitar Institute, and I went. And uh, it was not only uh, educational and formative, but it was enjoyable as well. Uh, these these guys show that they not only are able to play, but they're able to teach. Uh, they're more well-rounded individuals than a lot of people might even expect. You just don't see that going from uh, really any other genre of music. Of course, classical music has a lot of the old conservatories, which are centered in the in the Northeast, but the, you have to live in dorms there, and they really emphasize. There's a huge industry involved with trying to make someone a a, a symphony-level violinist, whereas most guitarists are a combination of self-taught and working with local instructors or the occasional guitar clinics. How many genres of music have created schools like you know, the Guitar Institute 
<clears throat> of of technology was it technology GIT mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or the Percussion Institute of Technology, both of which were later on ruled up uh, rolled up into the Musicians Institute of Technology, but GIT PIT. You don't see that for other genres of music. That's right. Uh, you know, if you want to play, uh, you know, be first violinist for the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, you'd better have a lot of time being at schools like Juilliard or Curtis uh, or some of the other conservatories on the East Coast. Yeah, like which are cost school you. music. Yes, that would be another one of the Johns Hopkins Conservatory. Schools that cost you know, probably hundred over $100,000 to get a degree from, and you yep. have to go live there. And heavy metal as well is is so much different in that it emphasizes composing, individual composing music, whereas in the classical music world, it's pretty much about playing works that other people have written. That you're, right. you're always playing something else, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but as a outlet for creativity, there's really not a lot of it going on, by and large, in, in most of the classical music world, whereas people who wanted to have something to say and who wanted to bring their music to the people, that was something that metal bands did very well, whereas most classical bands, uh, I was going to talk about this a little bit later on, but we're on the subject, that each town developed, or large city develops its own orchestra, and they're paid by a a system of patronage through ticket sales at the local symphony hall, and sometimes even with taxes. But the idea of them going out and doing a 85-city tour of the U.S., no, they're not going to. It's it's kind of a system that favors elitism, and you see a lot of that problem of elitism a lot in the classical music world, that there are people who are very much into that music who are, are kind of in the shadows, but most of the people that show up to symphonies and wear the tuxedos and stand up and clap for four or five minutes after an act, you know, most of them wouldn't know the difference between Bach or, say, or a Paganini piece. Right. You know, they're just wealthy bankers or lawyers or doctor types, and they go through the motions of liking that kind of music, but they really don't have any deep fixation to it. Whereas the metal performer or the metal fan are both very much locked into it. Um, before we go on from that, there there is a great um, composition on video that shows, I think, the just a tremendous talent it takes to, to be a top-flight metal guitarist uh, based from a movie that came out in 86 called Crossroads. It has Ralph Macchio as this aspiring blues player who, incidentally enough, he's studying classical guitar at Juilliard at the beginning of the movie. And it ends uh, with him having a guitar duel with Steve Vai. And what finally allows him to beat Steve Vai is he falls back on the neoclassical uh, guitar playing. In this case, it was Niccolo Paganini's uh, Caprice Number 5. And he just, you know, uses that to beat Vai. But Vai's playing spectacular throughout the whole uh, guitar duel as well. There's a a guitar instructor named Troy Grady who has these great videos that you can watch for free on playing, and he's really broken down a lot of what Steve Vai has done <clears throat> in, in that duel. And it's a, a bit telling about the quality of the of the 80s kids where he says he'll have younger guitarists say, you know, I don't get it that when Ralph Macchio starts playing his neoclassical piece at the end, the whole mood of the movie is is that you know, that Steve Vai's character has been beaten. You know, 
how did how do people know that? And Grady says, well, I mean, as you know, this movie was shot in the '80s, and the '80s kids knew that neoclassical guitar trumped just pure rock guitar. Oh yes. Of course, I think you know that Troy Grady probably hung out in an environment like he, you and I did, and he started you know <laughs> impacted his thinking some. I don't think the '80s kids knew that. I think the '80s kids that ran in our circles knew that. But oh, yeah. yeah, still, it's kind of a telling of, of the quality of music that was out at the time that you know that you would hear some you know sixteen, seventeen year old kids like you know hear like oh I can tell he's doing neoclassical playing. Right, and that's obviously much harder than just your traditional rock style playing. The irony of of that scene is that uh, that guitar part that uh, Ralph Macchio supposedly plays in reality was played by Steve Vai, mm-hmm. and uh, he's the one that in the studio recorded it. So Steve Vai beat himself <laughs> in that movie with, with playing that. They had a guy named Rye Cooter. Uh, played the slide guitar part. Yes, and he did a masterful, masterful oh, yes, job on yes. that. Played very, very well. Um, but at the end, that was Vi that that played the piece for Machio. And uh, you know, Machio really always struck me as being ill suited for that role. Um, but oh, an Italian kid who wants to play blues in the <laughs> South. I mean, yeah, it was a terror. They were obviously capitalizing on his popularity from the Karate Kid. Well, that's movie, absolutely but... correct. They tried to bring him up to speed uh, by getting a well-known guitar player who uh, is named Arlen Roth to coach him, and he was hired to coach him throughout that entire movie to make it look like he knew what he was doing on the guitar, and uh, so they were able to to make it believable. Uh, Arlen Roth is uh, well known in the community of guitar players for his instructional uh, materials, but he's also an incredibly fine player as well. And uh, he is a Jew, but uh, fortunately for him, he can actually play, uh, which is kind of rare for them. They usually uh, just use what other people do and steal it for themselves. But in this case, he's somebody who actually sat down and woodshedded and can do some things. And. Uh, so, I didn't know that. See, I always thought that Vi did the coaching on the role, but I mean, obviously, take your word for it that uh, you, you definitely sound better informed on that subject. Yeah, I thought Vi had done the coaching so he wouldn't and totally embarrass himself, but they had <laughs> actually then three guitarists who were involved in that movie, mm-hmm. you know, then Ry Cooter and Vi and then uh, Mr. Roth. Right. It, you know, with Vi doing that Paganini piece, and you'd mentioned earlier about Ingve Malmsteen and his uh, influence with with Paganini, that when I believe before Ingve set out doing his own solo career, he was with a band called Alcatraz. That's right. And when he left, then Alcatraz hired Steve Vai right to fill his shoes, and and Vai did. If you watch some of the videos, I thought he did a. You know, a pretty good job of actually improving on what Ingve was playing then. That he kind of had a different approach to it, but I think he came out with a. Um, he had a lot better tone than than Ingve did. Well, you know, uh, Vi actually is the superior musician of the two by far. Oh, certainly, certainly. He, uh, he's he's not hemmed into to such a specialization as as Ingve is. He can pretty much play anything. He started out uh, gaining some notoriety by playing with Frank Zappa and working for Frank Zappa. He actually put out a book called the Frank Zappa Guitar Book where he transcribed uh, a great many of Frank Zappa's guitar pieces. 
Very difficult transcription, by the way, too. Yeah, very difficult, uh, not only because of the uh, the harmonies being advanced, but Frank was a little bit on the sloppy side, so uh, some of those things didn't follow normal music rules. Um, but he did that, and uh, he played on some Zappa recordings, and uh, then he did some solo work, which was very indicative of the Frank Zappa influence in the sense that... That would have been his Flexibles album, exactly. wasn't it? Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right, which, you know, really showed that he could he could compose along with, you know, playing uh, pretty amazing guitar pieces. Uh, so he really has had an interesting career. And uh, I actually met him one time. Uh, he you did? Yeah. What he was, was the... Uh... He was at a music store before a concert, and uh, so I went to meet him and had to wait in line, but uh, I was slightly disappointed because when I shook his hand, he had a fishy handshake. <laughs> and, uh, boy, I, I expected him to shake hands like a man, so I clamped down real hard, and I could almost hear the bones crunching in his hand. <laughs> and all I could think of was, man, he's got to go play tonight. <laughs> I probably broke his hand. <laughs> he has those long spider fingers, which, I mean, I guess you would have to have to play the things that he does. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's... And, you know, uh, say what you will about uh, David Lee Roth, but I can tell you as a guitar player that his guitar work on particularly the Eat em and Smile album was spectacular. Uh, sure. I mean, it, it, if you only just listen for that alone, it's worth having. Uh, you know, Even if you didn't like Roth, you, you just have to appreciate the band that he had and, and buy his guitar playing on it. Uh, even, even the hit song like Yankee Rose, uh, just phenomenal guitar playing on it, uh, making the tar, guitar sound like it's talking in the beginning with the wah pedal. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, sure. Just, I mean, who else was doing that at that point? Nobody. Uh, he he kind of took the Van Halen approach and refined it and and put it on steroids. You know, um, it, it was it was really remarkable. And Joe Satriani actually was Steve Vai's guitar instructor uh, back in the seventies. So they went way back, and uh, so when Satriani hit the scene, people thought he was new, but he actually wasn't. He predated Vi, and had given lessons to Vi in the beginning, and and so that's why there were similarities between those two as well. And then, of course, Satriani made a, a mark on uh, Kirk Hammett of Metallica. Although that's right. Evidently, they only discussed using the uh, Crybaby Wah pedal for all the lessons or (laughs) that's what you would think from listening to Kurt Kamen's guitar solos because he is known for his love of that wah pedal indeed (laughs) (laughs) we thank everybody for listening and we'll be checking back in with you very soon take care